Everyday moments are small, simple, and ordinary. We can often grow frustrated with them, yet these are the moments that create our lives. Following Jesus is the same. What if following Jesus was more about the ordinary moments rather than the extraordinary? What if being with Jesus was more important than doing for Jesus? What if my spiritual life was dependent on everyday, ordinary rhythms of being with Jesus? An everyday disciple being with Jesus to be Jesus to others. Okay, by a show of hands, how many of you have played or do play a sports currently? By a show of hands, how many have played or do play? Yeah, right. I played football to uh, no shock of you, right? I've told you that before, but I played football in middle school and high school. And when I was in high school, I got a lot of neat opportunities to not only play the game, but also to be a leader on the team and on the field. In my senior year, the team voted me as uh, senior captain of the team. And so that came with some responsibilities, but it also came with this understanding of we're going to keep the team together. There was this moment during two-a-days, which if you don't know what two-a-days are, they're the worst thing known to man, because we would get up and you'd have to be at the school at seven. You didn't leave till three or four, and you had like 45 minutes in between two practices where you literally just passed out. And then they told you to get back up, and you went back outside, and you kept playing. And after one of those two-a-days, we had done both practices, and by the end of the second practice, usually they had us running for one reason or another. And so we were running what we called gassers. And gassers are literally from one end of the field to the other and back. That's one gasser. Usually we would do something around 20 or 25 of those to end a practice, okay? So we're going, and about halfway through, one of my teammates gets done with that gasser, and he just in agony says, I'm done, I'm done. He takes his helmet off, and you can hear the grumblings across the line with everybody. I look down, everybody's just frustrated, right? They want to be running. It's hot. They're exhausted. They want to be done, right? And he was just vocal about it. I remember in that moment, a few things kind of came to the surface for me. One was this, we're not quitting, okay? So we got to keep going, right? The second thing was, if I'm doing this, you're doing this with me kind of attitude, right? We're going to do this thing together, which led to the third thing, right? If this is how we're going to interact with gassers, how are we going to interact on Friday night when the football games come? If we're going to interact like this, where we're grumbling and we're throwing our helmets to the side and we're not sure we want to keep going, how are we going to do when it gets to the fourth quarter and things are going well in the game? Are we just going to throw our helmets to the side? I remember this changed the dynamic of how the team saw me. I went down the line and I got in his face and I looked at him and I said, put your helmet on. I screamed about as loud as I could. I said, put your helmet on. We are running. And I remember telling everybody else, line up. Let's go. And the coach blew the whistle, and we kept running. I was not a fan favorite after that day of practice. But my intent was this, is to maintain togetherness because the team required togetherness. If we were going to accomplish anything on the mission of winning, we had to have togetherness. And what's interesting is this. Inside of our own spiritual journey, we have a team. And if we don't maintain togetherness, there will be something missing inside of our journey. Being with Jesus includes togetherness. Following Jesus, a pivotal part of that, means togetherness. 
What we're going to look at today is it means to be intentional with each other. It means that we're going to have to be sacrificial. It means that we're going to have to lean into the missional side of why we're on the team. In the early church, we see the birth of the early church, the startings of the early church in Acts 2. In Acts 2, Luke writes about this picture of what the early church is. And he writes this in Acts 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Listen, today we're going to look at this idea of an everyday disciple chooses togetherness. We're in this series called Everyday Disciple. What does it look like to be with Jesus in the everyday? I believe for me that has been one of the hardest and sometimes most confusing parts of the journey of following Jesus. How do I do this in every day? What does it look like to be with Jesus? And our aim inside of this series is just to give handlebars to that. What does it look like? Where do I run? How do I interact inside of following Jesus? And if you're someone that has not said yes to Jesus before, I think these conversations are just as tangible for you and hopefully invite you to see who Jesus is and what he's about inside of that. Every series we provide a series guide that's on the back wall. Here in February we have part two of the series guide Everyday Disciple. So it's a new series guide with new content. So make sure you grab one of those on your way out or a welcome person or usher will hand those to you. But we want you to dive in not just on Sundays but Monday through Saturday inside of this conversation. Today we're just going to simply look at this phrase in Everyday Disciple chooses togetherness. An everyday disciple chooses, if not fights for, togetherness. And that wording is really important. Okay, that wording is super important. And here's why it's important. Because we can either choose to run into it or we can choose to run away from it. Togetherness is something that individually we choose to be a part of for the greater good and ultimately even for my greater good. It's not always something that I've been comfortable choosing. I remember growing up, and I've shared this before, growing up we would go to the community pool together. And at the community pool, you would assume that the community will be at that pool, right? That there's going to be people there. But inevitably, every time they'd load up the car, my parents would load us up in the car, I would look at my mom or dad and I would say, hey, do you think there will be people at the pool today? My parents probably wanted to slap me upside the head, but they probably looked at me and were just dumbfounded, like, yes, that is what the community pool is for. It's for people to be at. But as I was growing up, I was just deathly scared of people. Like, I just was fearful of people. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't know what people were thinking of me. I was nervous about people. I was nervous to be in large groups of people. And I think that oftentimes when we talk about this idea of togetherness, sometimes we look at it through the lens of the settings that I prefer and maybe how God's built me. Because we're all built differently. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us are introverts. Some of us have personalities where we love being around a lot of people. Some of us like to do the one-on-one conversations. And I think what's important as we jump into this conversation, no matter how you are built, God has built you for others. No matter how you are built, God has built you for people and for community, for relationship. And that's important. And choosing it is very important also. Because choosing it ultimately allows us to jump into 
what it looks like to follow Jesus together in some profound and beautiful ways. Because at the core of who Jesus is and who God is and how we were built is relationship and is community. You know that God actually interacts in community together, actually interacts in relationship together. We believe that God functions in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And inside of that relationship, they are together, but they are individually giving freely and receiving freely love. That God did not create us so that he could have relationships. God created us out of the overflow of love inside of relationship that he wanted us to enjoy with him and with each other. And if that's at the crux of what we believe, then it tells me some things about how I should interact inside of community. This is what, at the very beginning, Genesis 1 tells us. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. There's two things I gather from this passage. The first is this. Togetherness is important because God interacted together. Right, That idea of let us, that's plural, that's God speaking. Let us, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all had roles inside of creation, has roles inside of our salvation, has roles inside of the church. That as they were working together, giving freely, receiving freely, that ultimately it is at the core of what we believe about God. Which tells me this, that if we are made secondly in his image, in his likeness, then inside of that, it's probably core to us. Are we exactly the same as God? No, but we are given personality and character that we display his likeness and his image to the world. We are different than all the other creatures in the world. And at the core of that are some very distinct things. One of them, I believe, being community. That if God functions freely in community and relationship, with others, then he's inviting us to do the same with him and then with each other. But what's fascinating is this. As that happens, we see a couple chapters later, Genesis 3 takes place. And we see that sin severed relationship. Sin severed the relationship that we have with God. And sin severs the relationship that you and I have with each other. It severed the relationship with God because I believed, and Adam and Eve made this decision, and we make this decision every day, I believe that I can sit in the seat that only God sits in. I'm deceived into believing that I can be my own God, that I can be my own Savior, and that I can sit in that seat. And I don't place Him rightly in the seat of my life, and so I've built a wall between myself and God. But also what's fascinating is this, that not just that happens, but with each other, relationships are severed because of sin. Adam and Eve, they hide from God, and then God calls them out, and the first thing that they do is they start playing the blame game, right? Now, she made me do it. Well, he didn't tell me not to, and this and that. Sin severed that relationship. I think what's interesting is this. I would called this sin is trying to meet your own needs in and of yourself. And what sin is often trying to do is one of two things. They kind of go hand in hand. One is they try, sin tries to isolate me. Sin is most effective when I'm alone 
have no one around me, no one to go to. Sin is often, sin is often kind of coupled with hide it. Or just don't let anybody know about it. And so Satan, more than anything, wants to isolate us, wants to deceive us into believing that either I'm too far gone or I can handle this on my own. And I've been there, and it doesn't go well. The second thing is this. I can indoctrinate myself in my own thinking. And this is kind of a cultural thing right now, but has always really been, that if I'm not isolated, alone, lonely, all by myself in my own thinking, then I just group up with those that think like I do. That can happen relationally, that can happen politically, it can happen socially, it can happen even inside of communities like the church. Or if I indoctrinate myself just in my own thinking, then what happens is I justify my own thinking and my own doing. And I never actually function inside of relationship because here's what happens. What happens is this, that as long as I'm isolated in either of those camps, just by myself, my own thinking, or indoctrinated in my, my own thoughts, just with others in that circle, then I'm trying to meet my needs in and of myself still, and it never fulfills me. This is what Paul Tripp says in New Morning Mercies. We weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependence upon God. That's really important. We were created to interact with God, to love and receive love. And in a loving and humble interdependence with others, that's interesting, right? Elementary Joel would have been like, no way, Jose, no one at the community pool, right? But no, we are created to interact in relationship with others. Yet, the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all that we need within ourselves. So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual, because in and of ourselves, I feel safe. In and of ourselves, I feel like I can provide. And yet it never goes beneath the casual with the relationships. And here's what I would argue. I never actually get to the depths of my soul and the depths of what I'm actually longing for, which is a relationship with Jesus, and only he can fulfill that. Community starts with our dependence on God and our interdependence on others. Now, we're going to look at the passage in Acts 2 that is very famous to give us a foundation for community. And here's what I would say. The book of Acts is a marvelous book written by Luke, giving us a picture, informing us of a picture of what it looks like to interact in community, giving us some foundational blocks to what it looks like for the early church to interact in community. And oftentimes I struggle because I can read the book of Acts with rose-colored glasses where I read it and I'm like, that's exactly it. We need to go back to the early church. Now listen, when we read it, the early church was messy just like we are. And the reality is this, they're trying to figure this stuff out just like we are. And so when we read it, we need to read it as humans interacting together, trying to figure out how to do these things together just like we are. They're not perfect. What played out wasn't perfect. You read 1 Corinthians, Paul very clearly lays out things that weren't perfect. And yet the hope is we pursue Jesus together inside of that. The first thing I would note as we dive into Acts 2 is this. We need to be people who are together intentionally. We need people who are together intentionally. We see the early church lay some foundational blocks to that. Acts 2, 42, right where it starts, give you some context here. 
Here's what's happening before we get to verse 42. Peter has been sharing the gospel with numerous groups of people in Jerusalem who have all come to celebrate a festival. And as he shares, people come to say yes to Jesus. And 3,000, Luke writes, came to say yes to Jesus in that day. So all of a sudden, church growth metrics are just booming, and they got to figure out some things to do here. Because now they got 3,000 people, they got to start getting into circles and figuring out what's going on, right? And the first thing that's mentioned out of that skyrocketing boom of transformation is this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. What I love about this is it is super simple intentional. I think about my team illustration. When I played football, and and you could be in drama or music or board games or crafts, whatever it is, you probably have worked with teams of people at different times. When you're on a team, you need to have intentional practices that create a foundation for what you're about and how you're going to grow up in that. As a football player, we often would see that in practice. We would do things Monday through Thursday that would lead us into Friday, Monday watching film of the other team, Tuesday and Thursday playing offense and defense in practice, or Monday, uh, sorry, Tuesday and Wednesday doing offense and defense, Thursday, we would then do a run-through. Everything was intentional about getting to the game on Friday night, and it was often simple stuff. Run this play, do this thing, catch that pass, so that we would be prepared for Friday night. That's exactly what's happening here. They are being intentional about the right things. It's not necessarily they're perfect in everything. I bet sometimes they didn't feel like doing this all the time, right? But they were intentional together about doing the right things to set a foundation for what they were about, which is Jesus. That's why they were together. This group came together, and I know for a fact by reading Acts, they didn't all agree on, the, on everything. They didn't all have the same background. They didn't have all the same experiences. They weren't all from the same ethnicity. They were a varying different group that came together because of Jesus. That's what they found commonality on. That's what they found similarity on. That is what drove them and the messiness that was around them. They were intentional to bring it into practices that would form them around loving Jesus more and doing that to each other more, loving each other more. Now, what are these practices and how do they play out? Well, first is this. We see that there is teaching that took place. They would listen to the apostles' teaching They would listen to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to it. They they were fixed on it. It was something that was very common, whether it was like this or in a setting around a table, right? They would often listen to those that walked with Jesus, that followed Jesus at this point. And inside of that, what were they trying to do? I think the apostles were teaching in such a way that those listening would have leaned into a few things. First is this, who God is. Secondly, what God has done for them, primarily through the work and life of Jesus, which then would lead them to talk about who they are now, the new creation, their ambassadors, and then would lead them into how to go about that or what they do out of that. That the teachings were always focused on, yes, Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, who I am in light of that, and how I lean out of that. And as they continued to repeatedly do this, it formed a people around who? Jesus. 
You read in Colossians 3, Paul writes this, no longer Jew or Gentile, but you are now followers of Jesus, one in Christ. And as they continued to do this, they wanted to make sure a togetherness around the gospel was formed. Secondly, there was prayer. They were devoted to prayer. What I love about prayer is this. We see that maybe more often in Acts than anything else of these practices. The, the apostles led people in prayer all the time. That was the number one thing you see them doing. They would do it with fasting. They would fast and pray. They would worship and pray. They would sit in prison and pray. They would get beat up and pray. Like everything was just circumferenced around prayer. As you watch the early church walk through this, they prayed not as a church activity, but as a movement of their hearts, and then in response would hear from the Spirit. Acts 13 and 14, we see the church. They are praying and fasting and worshiping, just like any other day. And the Spirit of God speaks to them, send Paul and Barnabas, and go start planting churches. And they followed. That the movement of what they were doing was driven by prayer and by the Spirit speaking to them in such a way that they leaned into for the kingdom movement. Prayer was foundational. And I sat back as I was thinking this week, and I was like, how cool would it be if that was true for our church, that we would be known by how we pray, that we do an event and we pray, that we meet with people and we pray, that we're in the community and we pray, that we sit on a Sunday morning and we pray, that we go about life and we pray. That our storybook per se, our history book per se, of our campus and of Grace Church would be covered in prayer. Second, or thirdly is this, fellowship. They were in fellowship together. Fellowship literally just means they enjoyed being together. They just did stuff together. Whether they ate together or they played board games together or they watched a funny movie together, or they sang together. Whatever it was, they were together. And what I love about it is this. It just blatantly tells us that. They were just in fellowship together, which means this. They enjoyed being together. Like, they developed such a friendship around Jesus and around doing life together. They just enjoyed being together. They just showed up, and they're like, hey, we're together. We, we like this. We enjoy this. And it's motivated by what? A common goal, a common aim of Jesus. And I love that about what we see in the other church. They were just often together. And it wasn't necessarily because of the activities, and it wasn't necessarily because of the affinity was the same. It was because of Jesus, that there was someone who has changed their life. And as they started to hang out together, they couldn't get enough of each other. Now, was it always clean and perfect? and pers No, it was messy at times. And yet it was the reason that they kept driving into each other. The messiness didn't drive them away from each other, that it kept driving them into Jesus and into each other. And then lastly is they broke bread, which breaking bread kind of beckons back to when we see Jesus around the table with his disciples around the Last Supper, that as he was sitting there, he was breaking bread and he was passing the cup so that they would associate these very common things to his death and his new covenant and the resurrection that is to come, and the life that can be found in him. And what I love is this, that the church, the early church, made sure it was a practice that they continued to go back to. It's something that we do. It's something they did very often. Why? 
because these very physical things that they did by taking the bread, drinking of the wine, was a reminder of what? Who Jesus is, who God is, what he has done for us, who I am in light of that, and how I live out of that. It was a unifying measure. You talk about togetherness. When we take the bread and cup, that is a moment where, yeah, maybe individually we're taking it, but together we're taking it, recognizing we sit here purely because of what Jesus has done for us, and we have found salvation in that, and that's why we interact together in loving, caring, giving relationship. It's around him. And so these practices, simple. None of them are blow you out of the water. Wow, look what they were doing. Changing the world stuff. But they changed the world by allowing intentionality to drive their togetherness. And ultimately, it was around Jesus. So they were intentional. But secondly, they were people who were both sacrificial and authentic. They were together sacrificially and authentically. I think these things play hand in hand. I think these play hand in hand. I think to be sacrificial, there is an authenticity that comes with that or needs to be a part of that. And to be authentic usually means you have to sacrifice something. It usually means that you have to sacrifice something for the greater good or for the greater togetherness. We see that here in Acts 2 play out a little bit. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Here's the reality on my team, right? We made sure that we were prepared ourselves to be able to play the game for each other. And if there was ever a teammate in need or needed support or needed encouragement, we made sure that our needs came second to their needs coming first. And stories and stories of that could play out. Because ultimately, when I jumped onto the team, I knew that the team was greater than just me. It was about all of us inside of that. And it took sacrifice and it took us being real with each other. It took us being able to play together as a team and give to one another freely inside of that. And the church in Acts, they were generous toward each other. That's what I read in this. The sacrifice I'm talking about, yeah, their lives, of course, but they were sacrificial in what they had for the sake of another. I don't think this verse reads, and the apostles poked and prodded so that everybody kind of did what they needed to do, so everybody had what they needed to have. No, I think that they saw each other and had an empathy and recognized a need and stepped into it and gave to each other freely. Why? Because they recognized the generosity of God that's been given to them through Jesus that they're able to give to one another. Now listen, this verse doesn't explicitly say this, but I imagine this wasn't just limited to the circle of church community that they were in. I imagine they were generous towards people across their neighborhoods and across their community freely because that is at the essence, the culture of this group. It just was. It just was a part of what was going on. And so the question I would ask is, how am I generous with my time and talent and treasure? How am I generous in these ways not as a way to one-up anybody, not as a way to promote myself, but as a way to sacrifice for the greater of together. We see this throughout the church, uh, the, the book in Acts. We see this throughout the letters that Paul writes. He, he beckons and he says, this church gave to this church because of the overflowing generosity. 
When someone calls our church personally, and I answer and they're in, in, in some need, and maybe they don't come here, or maybe they're a part of our community, one of the first things that I always encourage them to do is to join us on a Sunday morning. And, and often I start with, this is not a, like a pastor juke, or I'm trying to get you to my church kind of thing. What I tell them is this, we have processes, we have plans, we have things that we can help you with. But once you get around the people that come to the church that I get to lead, you won't need to worry about the process and plan. They are overly generous, and it blows me away. So as you get to know people and you do life with them, there will not be a question on if you have a need. It will be met. You guys are amazing that way. It amazes me when I bring up circumstances or situations, how people respond generously for the sake of what? The gospel. For the sake of the gospel moving into someone's life and them seeing Jesus. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in his letters. That's what I think Luke is writing here. He's saying, it's not a poking or prodding. This is what we do as a church. It's just like, this is what we do as a church. Like, why, why wouldn't we? Because of Jesus doing it for us. Now, let's go deeper for a second. Because I think there's actually a second kind of sacrificial or authentic practice that sits underneath of this. One that's a little bit more nerve-wracking, maybe. One that I would argue I don't do well, and maybe we don't do well as the church. And this is where James goes inside of it. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. And here's what I mean by this. I think that confession is a lost practice in the capital C church. I just think it is. I think it is for a number of reasons. What is James talking about when he talks about confession here? The commentary put it this way. The root form of this word confession means literally to say the same thing. Hence, it means that in confessing sin, we agree to identify it by its true name and admit that it is sin. It's a simple definition, right? But what he's saying is this, in confessing, it is bringing forth and giving it a name and putting it in context to what's going on and bringing it to the surface. That, that arguably is the hardest part, giving it a name verbally and bringing it to the surface around those that care for me, that love me, that want to help me. Now listen, we're going to get to this in a moment. There are certain ways to do it and certain ways not to do it. There are certain environments to do it in, certain environments not to do it in, okay? I'm not promoting a let's have a upfront mic church confession time, okay? That's not what's going to happen here inside of this setting, okay? But I do think it's a lost practice in our churches. And why is that? First is this. I think confession maybe has been regulated or it's kind of been pushed aside for the big stuff, right? Whatever the big stuff means to you, it's, there's that line that all of us have, whether we like it or not, where we kind of draw it and we say, once we step over this, maybe I need to get others involved. But if it's not that, then maybe I can deal with it on my own. And so as long as I'm not doing stuff with money I'm not supposed to or having an affair or I'm doing this or that, then I can kind of handle this on my own, right? And we kind of regulate it that way. Secondly, I think it's this. We live in an individualistic culture, which maybe views how, we, uh, views how our church experience goes. 
okay? We live in an individualistic culture that maybe views how we do church experience. My honestly, if I were to be honest, right, inside of me, my human nature, right, doesn't always like this conversation because I just want to deal with it on my own, in my own ways, in my own environments. Like, if I were to just be honest, there's times where I'm like, I don't know if I just, I just want to talk about that. I'm not sure who to talk about that with. I'm not sure what to talk about. I feel uncomfortable, right? And, and that's a sentiment I think we all can, can maybe agree on. And yet, I believe there's something powerful around confession inside of community. Because when we lack confession inside of community, it has more impact communally than it does individually. I think oftentimes when we talk about confession, right, rightfully so, it has an impact individually. Lack of confession or once I confess, right? But I would argue that maybe a lack of confession has more impact on the community than it does even just the individual. That the community actually suffers when I don't reveal things or I hold things back because I'll start treating people differently. I'll start treating people in the ways that my sin directs me or I'm just hiding back here in such a way that I'll never be real. Just like Paul David Tripp said, we'll have surface level relationships. And like I said, I'm going to get to this in a moment. There's environments, there's audiences, there's ways to do this the right way. Here's how I would say it. Confession it's not just a practice of getting something off my chest. I actually think confession is a practice of choosing togetherness over my sinfulness. I think it's a practice of choosing togetherness over my sinfulness. Because here's the reality. Sin, shame, guilt, it wants to isolate you. All of that wants to isolate you. And as it isolates you, it wants you to believe the lies that it's sharing with you. Right? You can figure this out on your own, or it's not that bad, or it doesn't impact anybody else, or you're going to be okay on your own. Just figure it out. And what happens is you start to sit in the seat that only God can sit in, and it never gets revealed inside of that. And I think it is so easy for me, I'll just speak for myself, it is so easy for me to run into that very, very frequently. I like running away from, rather into, Away from rather than into confession or dealing with the things that are going on in my inner life. It's just easier. And I believe that the church needs to be a safe place, a safe space for those conversations to happen. It, it should be. That's what I think the early church was trying to set a foundation of. It should be a safe space where two things happen where two things happen, where I can confess and where forgiveness is given and there is transformation walked through. Because here's the reality. Confession is sacrificial. It's sacrificial because I'm choosing togetherness over sinfulness. I'm choosing to love others more than myself. And so when I confess, I'm letting go of my sinfulness for the sake of togetherness. I'm choosing to love others more than myself inside of that. That is a sacrifice don't get me wrong, because that means I have to get outside of myself. I have to see how maybe I'm impacting others. I have to see maybe how I am, my actions are dictating the ways that I interact or the ways that I'm giving or receiving. But also this, I think it's important, when I'm forgiving, right, if I'm on the end of someone confessing towards me, when I'm forgetting, I need to let go of my pride, anger, resentment for the sake of loving others more than myself, that it can be just as 
tempting, can be just as tempting to dismiss confession or maybe blow it out of the water rather than coming alongside of someone and extending forgiveness, whether it's been done directly to you or not, and walking through healing with someone for the sake of what? Jesus, them seeing Jesus more and more, and ultimately for love, the love of Jesus to be reciprocated more and more. Now, when we talk about confession, I need to be aware of a few things, okay? First is this, the environments. Not every environment is great for every confession, okay? Choosing the environment is really, really, really important. That's why I told you we're not going to do open mic confessional time inside of a service, okay? Get weird and awkward very quickly. The environment is very important. Why? Because healing needs to be promoted, not just a revealing. If I reveal and nothing happens, then we've missed the point. I need to walk with someone in healing. I need to walk with someone through the journey of what they're walking through and not condemning them for that, but walking them into healing. So the environment, I think about, there's probably a couple different environments. I think about who is a spiritual partner, a co-laborer with you, that is that one or two people in your life that you're running into Jesus with, that has been doing it with you in, inside of that small environment. Maybe it's a life group right? There are certain things that maybe inside of a life group would be able to be shared and, and maybe be able to be spoken to. I think those environments that maybe are smaller and allow for healing to take place, right? Sometimes larger groups are, are, um, are appropriate, but I would say be careful there, right? Audience, who's the audience I'm telling? Well, I think that depends on the environment sometimes. Who's the one or two around you you're co-laboring with? Maybe who's the person that has mentored or is a leader in your life that you can trust and you can bring it to that will walk with you inside of the journey. I think this is one of the biggest things that I, I always caution people. Uh, don't just tell everybody what's going on in every part of your life because at that point we're just airing dirty laundry instead of allowing for Jesus to transform me. So who am I telling that is actually going to help me promote healing? Thirdly is the content, Right? Am I making sure that I'm identifying it? I'm, make, I'm giving it a name and bringing it to the surface. So I'm not just sharing a little bit here and not what needs to be shared. And I'm not sharing an over-exaggerated amount so that I get a reaction. How do I make sure the content is identifying and bringing to the surface? And then the tone, right? The tone is one of humble, broken spirit inside of confession. Tyler Stanton would say this, a maturing community is a confessing community. Not a church without sin, but a church without secrets, right? I am far from perfect inside of this conversation. I know we as a church are. I know we'll never be there as a church or even the capital C church. My hope is this, is that it would encourage you to think about the two or three around you that maybe that relationship can develop in for the sake of what, Joel? So that we can just share all the different things that we're... No. For the sake of you loving Jesus more and pursuing loving like Jesus loves more. That as you get to know each other inside of that, you get to not only grace each other, which is an active gospel illustration, an active gospel act towards each other, forgiving, asking for forgiveness. And it allows you to pursue Jesus in ways that without it, we wouldn't. So intentionally, sacrificially, authentically, and then lastly is this, we need to be people who are together missionally. 
people who are together missionally, are we allowing the mission, mission to drive us, to drive us into what we're doing? I think the intentional things, the sacrificial things, the authentic things give to this last one because we see this in Acts 2, verses 46 to 47. Every day they continue to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Right? On the team that I was on, we had a mission, score more touchdowns than the other team. Right? Sometimes we accomplished that and sometimes we didn't. But there was always a mission that we were pursuing so that Friday night, the things we were intentional about, the things we were sacrificing made sense. Our goal is to not just have a great community experience, but that we would be able to invite others into that community experience. That the things that we are experiencing inside of community, inside of the church, inside of your small group, whatever it is, the people that you're with, would be attractive to others that are looking from the inside out. Right? I, I would use this illustration. We shouldn't be the lunch tables in the high school lunchroom Right? We're just kind of clicking up, and it's like, as long as you're here at the church, we do the church things, right? But that ultimately, in us interacting, our ability to mingle and be intentional and mingle and be sacrificial and mingle and be authentic will then invite others to join the community that we are in. We're not a club. We're a church who's on a mission to see people come to know Jesus and fall more in love with him. What I love is this. The church in the book of Acts, not only cared for each other, but it spilled out to the people around them. And I think what's interesting is this. In this passage, we don't see some evangelistic program. We don't see some event or plan. We don't see some, um, some, some you know, thing that's happening that they're running into, right? What we see them doing are the things that have been stated already. They were meeting together. They broke bread. They ate together. They had sincere hearts. They're authentic. They're praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, that as they were intentional, as they were sacrificial, as they were authentic, as they were doing life together, it seeped from them into their everyday lives, that they were not on some evangelistic kind of road trip. Every day was an evangelistic opportunity because their sharing life rolled into how they shared life with others around them. How does our life being shared with each other impact our workplaces? How does it impact our schools, teenagers? How does it impact our neighborhood and our community? Yes, a part of that is verbally sharing the good news of Jesus. That has to be a part of it. But if our lives don't look attractive in following Jesus, then I think we've missed something to the intentionality, the sacrificial nature of what it means to be together. Because here's the reality. What I love about this passage and where the togetherness thing is, is we're not just together when we're together like this. We also are together when we're out doing life and we're not seeing each other. But you and I have a togetherness that carries with us. That, that's what makes this unique, right? You can leave a ball game, you can leave the restaurant, you can leave this and that, and it feels like your life is separate but in here, we're tied together whether we're around each other 24-7 or not because we're together around Jesus who goes with us wherever we're at. And that's the invitation that he gives us and that he invites us into. What I love about this passage is it tells us, and next week we're going to talk about the missional nature of 
what it means to be with Jesus. So I'm not going to go too in-depth here. But it tells us this, and the Lord added to their number daily. The Lord added to their number daily. Basically, if we were to be basic with it, they did the things they need to do right, and we trust that God is going to do what he tells us he's going to do. Right? They position themselves to be intentional with the right things, and we trust that God is going to add to the number of those who are being saved. That is not our job. That is God's job. But he invites us to play a part as we share life together inside of this journey. So, as we talk about togetherness, what does it look like to actually walk into our week to do that? Two things that I would invite you to consider. First is this. First challenge is this. The question is, who are your people? Who are your people? Okay? And here's what I would challenge you to do. Spend 15 minutes this week to identify who is around you that is giving to your togetherness. Maybe for some of us, we need to choose togetherness, invite others into our life. For others, maybe we need to identify some circles of togetherness. There's a research by a man named Dunbar who, who argues that our relational cap hits at about 150. And he would put it into circles of kind of influence in our life. Circles that have kind of weightedness to them in the size that they're at. The circle one down at the bottom that is the closest, the tightest circle there, it's the close few. That's the one to three usually, maybe five, kind of depending on the situation, that you are closest to, that you would call a spiritual co-laborer maybe, or a mentor, or a leader in your life, your spouse. Those are the people that you're sharing stuff with. Those are people that, maybe this idea of confession, that's where it would happen most often. You're walking the journey with them. That's who you're spending a lot of time with. That's where your life is being shared at maybe raw and real levels. And we all need those people in our life. The second layer is the inner circle. That's what we would define as maybe life groups. That's your next 12 to 15, maybe to 20-ish, right? That you're doing life with. They know your life. They're, they're intertwined in your life. You're doing things outside of life group time. You're getting to know each other. You're sharing what's going on, right? But, but maybe they're not down here hearing all of the raw and real, right? Maybe that's not the environment where the completely intimate moment or sharing happens, but they're close. They're going to be able to invite you in. You're inviting them in. They're going to walk with you. You're going to see Jesus in them, and they're going to help you pursue Jesus. The next is the middle circle. The middle circle usually is like the 25 to 50 Right? It's those that maybe you see in here and you are growing in friendship. You're getting to know them. You're getting to know their kids. You're, you're seeing them at events or maybe you're seeing them at school and you're starting to see your lives are intertwined, but maybe that is not as close of a relationship for you. Then you go out to the outer circle and that would be kind of, if you call Grace Church your home, that would be uh, the barroom campus as a whole. Both services, people that maybe you know really well and people that you don't know as well. Maybe you see people and you're like, who are they? And I need to know them. But they're a group that you can call home and that you align with and that you can run with as a whole. Every circle is really important. What we're doing in here is a part of togetherness that each and every one of us needs to experience. My plea to you is spend 15 minutes and identify where each of these circles are. And maybe, right, if we're sitting in this circle, we might have the outer circle checked, whether it's here or school or workplace, whatever. But as you get down further, 
Who isn't in your inner circle or your few that you're able to do life with consistently and they see you and they challenge you and they encourage you and they help you pursue Jesus inside of that? The stretch challenge is this, okay? And as the worship team comes up, we're going to end here. The stretch challenge is one that we often go to, one that you probably are assuming, but it's join a life group if you're not a part of a life group. Because here's the reality. I will never fully interact in community unless I start to take steps towards it. Choosing togetherness is an invitation that each and every one of us can be a part of. Now listen, if it's not the right season for that, or you're wondering what options there are, the next steps board on the back would be a great place to start. Talk to me after the service. We'd love to get you in some form of a community that sits and gets to know you. I'm amazed. I, I do discovery group, you know, three times a year, four times a year. And there's people sometimes that sift through discovery group, which is usually about five to ten people that I might know from this setting. But it's amazing how quickly in four weeks we get to know each other better. There's something about that setting that allows for relationship to propel in unique ways. Now, here is also my plea with you. Don't give up on it too soon. It'll feel awkward at times. It'll feel messy. It'll be aggravating. You'll have personalities that sit across the room that you don't get along with or you're not sure about. But the reason we're there is Jesus, and we try to figure it out as we go. And that's the beauty of it, is that we can forgive, and we can, we can talk, and we can share, and we can be open, because Jesus is at the center of that. That is the hope inside of what we're doing. If you're a part of a life group already, think about who you can be in relationship with in your life group or invite into your life group that goes beyond just that setting. You can just leave life group as a church activity I do once a week. What if you got dinner with a couple that was in your life group or invited someone from this setting to join your life group, right? Think about ways that you can promote community and togetherness in your own life. So Father, we thank you for this time, for your grace and your mercy. Father, just ask that you would lead us. Lead me right now, Father. Father, I'm guilty of not being intentional. I'm guilty of not confessing. I'm guilty of not being sacrificial. I'm guilty of not being missional. I'm guilty of not caring about my own needs inside of this conversation. And so, Father, would you grace me? Would you cover me? Would you forgive me? Would you open my heart to where I need to be inside of this? And would you do the same for all of us. Father, this is more about you than it is about us. It's more about each other than it is about us. That, Father, you desire us to bring who we are into who we are as a church. Your spirit leads in that. We ask that your spirit would just go. You tie us together around the gospel, Father. Make yourself known. Just pray this in your name.